Good afternoon, and welcome to the Jewish Policy Center webinar on this Leap Day 2024. I'm Shoshana Bryan, Senior Director of the JPC, and your host. I actually don't like Leap Day. It postpones the arrival of meteorological spring, which will now arrive tomorrow. But here we are, and we have more important things to occupy our attention today. Our guest, Simone Ledina, is going to talk to us about the war in the Red Sea and U.S. policy toward the perpetrators. But before we get to Simone, your JPC commercial. The Jewish Policy Center was established in 1985 as a nonprofit organization providing analysis of foreign and domestic policies. We support a strong American defense capability, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. Most important today and every day, we support the legitimacy and security of the state of Israel against anyone who would deny them. And now more than ever, we support the efforts of the government of Israel and the IDF to defend the people and to bring the perpetrators of the massacres and the hostage taking to justice. As an organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the JPC advocates for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, and energy security, as well as free speech and intellectual diversity. You can find us on our website at jewishpolicycenter.org. That's jewishpolicycenter.org. There you can read our Insight articles and our magazine In Focus Quarterly. You can also find our uh, previous webinar programs in case you need to binge one night. They're all there for you. Today, we're talking about the war in the Red Sea, which is, to me, a non-war in the American public mind. It isn't perceived as a war. It isn't written about as a war. If it's written about at all, it is considered the result of Israel's defensive war in Gaza. Our guest, Simon Ledin, however, wrote that the war is the result of the Biden administration's approach to Iran and its Houthi proxies, which, she said, has placed American service members and global trade routes at grave risk. She calls the policy appeasement, and we're going to talk about it. Simone Ledin is a leader in defense policy and national security with extensive expertise in intelligence, counterterrorism, and emerging technology. As Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East, she navigated complex geopolitical challenges, including those related to China's rise. And Simone, I'm going to tell you right now, there are questions about China. We'll get to them. Her private sector work has included a key role at Standard Charter Bank, launching a comprehensive financial crime compliance program covering Africa and the Middle East. With foundational experience in government, including deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq, Simone's work continues to shape our national security through advisory and consulting roles and defense technology investment. Simone Ledin, the floor is yours. Thank you. And uh, thanks for pointing out uh, that it's leap day. I uh, wasn't paying attention, so thank you. Um, auspicious day to be doing this, and I'm, I'm pleased to be here with you all today. The, um, the Middle East is at a pivotal moment. The region is currently embroiled in a high stakes, multidimensional conflict fueled by Iran's calculated aggression against the United States, Israel, and our partners and allies, our other partners and allies, I should say. The evidence is clear. The Iranian regime is sowing this discord, threatening international peace and stability. From the shadows, the regime is advancing its agenda by planning and funding attacks by its proxies, which Iran also trains and equips. My focus, uh, the focus of my remarks today will be on one of these proxies on the Houthis, but I look forward to addressing uh, other proxies and, and all of your questions as well. Um, the Houthis are also known as Ansar Allah and um, Let's get into that a little bit. I'll also give um, some recommendations at the end for what I think the U.S. Uh, could do to address this um, in a more direct way. Um, the United States so far timid approach towards the Iranian regime <clears throat> has directly encouraged Tehran's aggression. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its affiliates have relentlessly escalated their attacks against the US, jeopardizing our interests and those of our partners and allies. The Biden administration's hesitancy has placed US service members and crucial global trade routes at grave risk. 
The administration's policy of appeasement toward the Iranian regime has proven to be a dangerous fantasy, setting the post-Abraham Accords Middle East on fire. Urgent action is required. The United States must decisively undermine the Iranian regime's ability to support its proxies, both militarily and financially. We must work closely with our partners and allies to impose significant costs on Tehran and its so-called axis of resistance. And we must vocally back the Iranian protest movement, signaling unwavering support for the freedom and human rights of the long oppressed Iranian people. Um, so now I'm gonna talk a little bit about the Houthis attacks on global shipping since October uh, of last year. Since uh, actually mid-November 2023, the Iranian-backed Houthi rebel group has sharply increased its attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. These aggressive actions have severely disrupted key shipping routes, damaging the global economy. The Houthis have used drones, missiles, and small boats to target both commercial and naval vessels, threatening a critical waterway for international trade. Companies have had to reroute ships to avoid the area, leading to a surge in shipping costs and longer travel times, given that they must now travel around the African coast. An estimated 12% of international trade, amounting to over $1 trillion in goods annually, including a substantial portion of the world's container traffic, normally navigates through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Between October 2023 and early February 2024, the Houthis launched uh, an alarming, and actually now we're in late February and they're still attacking um, maritime targets in the Red Sea. Um, and I wanna talk a little bit about why this is so alarming, not just the fact of the attacks, but the munitions that they're using. So the Houthis are using cruise missiles and land attack cruise missiles, which indicate a strategic capability to target both maritime and land-based assets simultaneously. They're using a staggering number of suicide unmanned aerial vehicles, showcasing an ability to employ drone technology for both surveillance and direct attacks. These are basically, um, you know, the suicide drones that carry small uh, arms on them, like grenades and other things. Um, they are also using unmanned surface vessels, which highlight the use of uh, innovative use of maritime warfare technology. Uh, cutting edge maritime warfare technology. And finally, uh, the Houthis are using anti-ship ballistic missiles, making them the first in the world to deploy ballistic missiles against ships. A lot of people uh, don't realize that, and it, it is quite significant. Um, it marks a, a, not only a significant, but an alarming evolution in regional maritime warfare, signaling a sophisticated leap in their military capabilities, which now align with those of only a few nations. ASBMs have historically been part of, like I said, only a few nations' uh, arsenals, um, and it highlights the advanced nature of the Houthis' threat to maritime security. It also illustrates the strategic depth of Iran's influence, um, which has extended its power projection far beyond its borders. Obviously, this type of advanced technology was not uh, is not something that a small rebel group, a then small rebel group in Yemen could have devised. This um, was directly provided by the Iranian regime. Um, and it aims to, they aim to deter the United States from intervening in regional conflicts um, and positions Iran as um, a formidable disruptor of international maritime commerce. So, um, but it is important to point out, despite the relatively high number of attacks, the recorded hits on maritime targets have been relatively limited, um, which you know highlights the Houthis' difficulty in achieving precise hits, even with these more sophisticated weapons. So in concert with these relentless attacks against global shipping, Iran and its allies have been exploiting maritime navigation systems to conduct operations with relative impunity in the Red Sea, often disguising their activities under the flags of China, Iran, or Russia. The Dark Fleet, uh, as it's called by some, enjoys a peculiar immunity from Houthi attacks, underscoring 
um, a coordinated effort that aligns with Iran's strategic interests. This fleet comprising vessels that often turn off their transponders to obscure their locations and identities um, primarily facilitates the transport of oil from sanctions hit countries like Venezuela and Iran. But now um, it's they're also turning off transponders or flying under these specific flags um, to indicate uh, that they are aligned with Iran and for the Houthis not to attack them. Um, this exploits a really sophisticated method to circumvent also international sanctions and raises concerns about the selective enforcement of maritime security um, since this dark fleet is still able to navigate with relative impunity. So the Houthi movement um, has evolved into a significant threat uh, to obviously Yemen, to the broader Middle East, to the US service members in the region. Um, it originated from a uh, Zaidi Shiite insurgency, which was challenging the Sunni uh, Yemeni government. So over the years, and thanks in large part to its Iranian sponsorship, this group has transitioned into a formidable military force. Um, the conflict, the Yemeni civil war, which really erupted in 2015, um, has been driven by the Houthis' actions. It's completely destabilized Yemen, has caused a massive humanitarian crisis, and significantly complicated the strategic landscape for the US and, and uh, our allies in the Middle East. And um, we can get more into that uh, if, you, if you want as well. Um, I do wanna highlight that the chaos caused by the Houthis in Yemen has also provided Al-Qaeda in the Arabian, Arabian Peninsula, also called AQAP, has provided them with opportunities to fortify their operations. So AQAP has been responsible for a lot of high-profile terrorist attacks over the years, including the Charlie Hebdo attack in 2015 and the, excuse me, the USS Cole bombing in 2000. Yemen today offers AQAP a very favorable environment for training and attack planning. And actually just recently they released a nine minute video advocating for lone jihad in the West. Um, it featured English narration and it was presented by uh, a figure who has a $4 million US bounty on his head. Uh, this video is what we've come to expect from Al-Qaeda. It glorifies past jihadist attacks on US soil, and it signals um, Al-Qaeda's ongoing threat to global security. Um, it's also worth mentioning that the relationship between Iran and Al-Qaeda has uh, evolved. While the support that Iran has provided Shia groups is well-documented, they've also um, aided Al-Qaeda. The IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, has provided a safe haven for Al-Qaeda leadership for many years. In the 1990s, an agreement was actually made between Osama bin Laden's team and the Iranian regime to allow for Al-Qaeda members to travel through Iran and into Afghanistan. This has provided uh, over the years a really a key passageway for Al-Qaeda to move money um, and to move fighters. So Iran really has gone above and beyond uh, to host specific Al-Qaeda leaders as well. Um, for example, they harbored Saif al-Adil, who, who some consider to be Al-Qaeda's de facto leader um, within Iranian borders. So pretty significant. A lot of people don't, uh, don't know about that or don't talk about it. So I wanted to highlight that for you today. Um, moving on, um, in the interest of time, uh, I... I want to talk a little bit about um, the Biden administration's response. Um, the contrast between the optimism fostered by the Abraham Accords in 2020 and today's current situation, the reality we're all facing, it, it could not be more stark. The disappointment in the Biden administration's regional policy is, is palpable amongst our partners and allies. The persistent escalation from Iranian-backed proxies, including the Houthis, including Hamas, including Hezbollah, it necessitates, I mean, we must reevaluate our strategy. The United States must reevaluate its strategy. I don't see any sign of that at the moment. 
the Biden administration's current strategy of appeasement is not viable. Aggression against U.S. interests and our requirement for glo global freedom of navigation um, demands a swift and decisive response. And the fact that we haven't seen that to now um, has made the world a more dangerous place. Um, we have not deterred any further escalation. In fact, we've invited it um, and we must restore regional balance. Um, I, I truly fear for the future at the moment. Recent defensive military actions, which we see now almost every day um, against the Houthis have not stopped their attacks. The continued rerouting of shipping and the spike in insurance costs are a testament to our flawed approach. Announcing strikes in advance, as we did in Syria, to avoid enemy casualties signals hesitancy and undermines the protection of our interests. As I said, uh, appeasement has invited escalation. The Biden administration's early diplomatic efforts in the region, including pressuring Saudi Arabia to cease hostilities against the Houthis, delisting the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization in February 2021, and attempting to revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran only emboldened Tehran. At the same time, the significant increase in Iranian oil sales in 2023 has financed the regime's aggression and proxy activities towards the region. So I could go on and on, but I'm gonna skip ahead to um, recommendations here. So to address the escalating threats posed by Iran and its proxy Houthi rebels, a comprehensive new strategy must be impl implemented as soon as possible. Here are some things that we could consider doing. Number one, rigorous sanctions enforcement. We must implement and strictly enforce sanctions to cut off uh, Tehran's financial lifelines, hindering its ability to fund nuclear advancements and support regional terrorism. Sanctions must be enforced. They are not currently being enforced against critical sectors of Iran's economy, including oil exports, banking, and key industries to significantly reduce Tehran's revenue streams. That's something we can do today. We must reestablish deterrence with decisive military activities. And what I mean there is a prolonged campaign against Iranian proxies. We can talk about that in detail if you'd like. Um, number three, strengthen regional cooperation and partnerships. Enhance cooperation with regional allies um, to secure necessary access, facing and overflight rights for this campaign we mentioned. This entails deepening strategic partnerships with relevant Gulf Cooperation Council countries and enhancing joint <clears throat> military training exercises. We can start reaching out to do that today. Um, they just don't think we're serious at the moment. Number four, support efforts to counter the Houthi threat. We could reinvigorate the Saudi-led coalition's efforts to neutralize the Houthi threat in Yemen by providing comprehensive military support. This support could include advanced weaponry, intelligence assistance, um, the list goes on and on. Um, we could bolster the defense capabilities of key allies, um, including Israel, um, and provide unwavering support not only to Israel to safeguard Israel's security, which we must do, but also um, <clears throat> assist them in destroying Hamas, deterring Hezbollah from a large-scale attack against Israel. Um, this includes ensuring Israel's qualitative military edge through the provision of advanced military technology, um, increasing joint military exercises, and intelligence sharing. Although right now, since Israel is engaged in a multi-front war, I think exercises might be complicated, but we need to give them everything that they need. Um, we also need to support efforts to strengthen and resupply Israel's military defense systems. Um, such as Iron Dome and David Sling. And, and current statements from the Biden administration um, are not only not helpful, they're actually very dangerous. And finally, we should support the Iranian people. So um, we must support the protest movement within Iran, which has been you know, enduring the regime's oppression for years. It, we could manifest the support in various forms. I mean, anything from official statements recognizing the legitimacy of the protesters' grievances to more tangible support like facilitating strategic communications channels for activists and providing platforms for the voices of the Iranian people to be heard internationally. 
Um, this is not a heavy lift, but we are not doing any of these things uh, at the moment. So I will stop there and I look forward to the discussion and Shoshana, thank you again so much for uh, having me today. Thank you, Simone. Um, if I wasn't worried before, I'm worried now. So let's start with a sort of theoretical question. There's a lot of talk about deterring Iran, deterrence and deterrence. Did we ever deter them? In 1979, when they just got there, they took the embassy, they took the hostages, they had them for 400 days. In the 80s, um, the U.S. embassy in, in Beirut blew up, the Marine Corps barracks blew up in Beirut, and that was a Iranian proxy. It supplied IEDs to the Iraqi militias that killed hundreds of American GIs. It's been arming and training all these people. No matter what we do, and we did have for a little while some pretty good sanctions that reduced their bank balance, um, have we ever really deterred them? And what would it take to really make them say, don't want to do that because I will pay? Well, that's uh, that's exactly right. And that's that's what deterrence is. I mean, you you impose costs that are so high that the decision making calculus is it's not worth it. I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, what we were successful in doing um, during the um during the um, maximum pressure campaign was really cutting off a lot of sources of funding from Iran, uh, to Iran rather. So the Iranian budget, Iranian revenue, cash on hand was, you know, they were struggling. And we actually see this now. Their, um, their documents that were seized in some of the uh, IDF raids in Gaza showing the payments that they were getting from Iran went down significantly for a couple of years during the max pressure campaign. So was that deterrence? No, we didn't deter them. Um, I think you could argue that the, the um, strike against Qasem Soleimani served as a deterrent for a while, but you know, in my view, we didn't really follow up with prolonged actions, prolong like a prolonged campaign, which I think could have been more effective in the long term, but certainly um, the behaviors changed after that. So, um, but no, have we had a prolonged period where we've deterred around? No, we haven't. And and they've learned from that clearly. They have no fear of us. They don't believe we're going to do anything. And worse even than that, our partners and allies um, share that belief that we're not going to, we're going to continue to avoid deterrence because we are scared of escalation. In the meantime, not deterring them is actually escalating the situation. So you mentioned Soleimani, which would be, I would agree with you that that was one time when we altered their behavior um, by choice, not by necessity. If you take away their money, they don't have any money, but the elimination of Soleimani changed their calculus. Do we need to strike inside of Iran? I mean. So that's a, uh, I mean, this is a question everyone's asking right now. My personal belief is we don't need to. Um, I also think it's counterproductive because the Iranian people, uh, for you know, by and large, for the most part, also don't like the regime and and want to see it ended. So I think if they were, if we were to conduct a prolonged operation um, against Iranian proxies in the region, not inside of Iran, and supported the protest movement inside of Iran, I think that we would, we have a shared goal. And I think that would, we would be quite far along in achieving that, um, if not wholly successful. I think in the event that we were to take strikes inside of Iran, and by we, I don't necessarily mean the United States alone, but our, our partners and allies who are who share this struggle with us. Uh, I think they they would need to be quite targeted and quite specific, and not just you know a big bombing campaign inside of Iran. I think that would be the worst possible thing we could do, um, aside from nothing, which is really what we're doing right now. So you mentioned our allies and our friends in the region, and we do have friends and allies. Um, and you were an advocate of bringing Israel into U.S. CENTCOM in the previous administration, and it's there now. And um, it's doing very well. I mean, the exercises that the U.S. has had with Israel have made CENTCOM people very happy. 
CENTCOM Commander General Eric Carrillo visited Israel, I think seven times um, between entering that position and October 7th. He's been extremely, extremely positive about Israel in CENTCOM. But now we're not really hearing about CENTCOM, we're hearing about the US doing this and Britain doing that, and France may do something. What happened to CENTCOM? Is it operating? Is it their job really to uh, conduct this a series of operations against the Houthis? Uh, it is, but you know we in the United States have a civilian-led military, and so uh, the General Carrilla has to follow the the orders of of the president and and the White House. So that's. Um, that's sort of where we are, I think, given the constraints that he is likely operating under, um, he's doing his best. Um, there have been some pretty strong uh, statements coming out of CENTCOM, but at the end of the day, it's clear they've only been authorized to take defensive actions, um, and they have not been authorized to take any further actions. And, and uh, so they'll conduct a strike. They've been conducting strikes inside of Yemen, that are directly related to, you know, the ballistic missile program or, or maybe launch sites from some of their, uh, for some of their suicide drones. Um, and they're, they message that they take a strike, they put out a message. We, we took a defensive action against XYZ and, um, and that's, that's sort of where we stand right now. So I didn't mean to criticize General Carrilla, who clearly is only going to do what his civilian um, bosses tell him to do as he should. But are you suggesting that those actions that the US takes in the Red Sea are actually CENTCOM ex actions that we are using our CENTCOM arm to do those things that, that we are doing? Yeah, absolutely. That's CENTCOM that is, these are, these are CENTCOM assets that are operating in that region, yes. Could we assume that some of our CENTCOM partners are involved as well? Or do you, or is it just US assets under CENTCOM? I don't know. And I don't know if there's if you can answer that question. Well, no, they're uh, on the on the maritime side, maritime security, uh, CENTCOM has, I think, several different um multinational uh multinational um Sorry, the word is escaping me at the moment, but groups of, of various partner countries who are operating um, in the Red Sea area to quote unquote provide security um, and to provide escorts to uh, to container ships and things like that. They're really the, meant to provide deterrence. But, you know, I would compare their act their activities in the Red Sea and the Baba Mendo Strait to a neighborhood watch where let's say you and I would be patrolling our neighborhoods, maybe like just walking around. And the fact that we're, we're visibly there is meant to be a deterrence. Um, but in fact, it's not. So, because we can see, again, as I mentioned in my remarks, we can see the ships are, are continuing to transit uh, Africa um, all the way down to the, the Cape of Good Hope and back adding about two weeks um, to their journey. So it's not effective, um, but there there have been a lot of press releases and a lot of handshaking about, yes, we have this, we have these great partnerships and we're doing more. We need to take action. Patrols uh, and escorts are not the action that is required to deter this activity. So let's just to be clear about what you said, if a ship can't transit the Red Sea and the Suez Canal out to the Mediterranean Sea, there is no other way to do this except to sail all the way to the southern part of Africa, around the bottom of Africa, and come up the other side. Yeah. So that's what is doing a couple of things. It's making uh, goods more expensive because it's a lot more money to go around and do that than it was to go through the Suez Canal. And um, this raises the question of Egypt. So Egypt is the one who profits from the Suez Canal. Egypt runs the canal, Egypt makes the money, Egypt is now losing a ton of money. 
um, and its position in the region is being definitely harmed by this. Are the Egyptians on our side here? Are they playing with us? Are they partners with us? Or are they hoping that we will um, take care of them? How are we doing with the Egyptians? Uh, it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> well, like the rest of it isn't complicated. <laughs> what do you think? Um, Egypt is an important but very complicated partner for the United States. Um, they do not have the military capabilities required to uh, restore deterrence in the Red Sea. So they rely on us to help them. They rely on us and other partners. Um, we are not doing that and they are losing money. Um, a lot of money that they don't have. Uh, this revenue is critical for the, you know, for the Egyptian government and they've already been facing an economic crisis um, the past few years, COVID was very tough for them. Um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, very tough for them in terms of, um, you know, their diet is based on wheat and, uh, they're like 80 plus percent of their wheat comes from Ukraine, came from Ukraine. So this has been, they found other wheat, but not at the same price point. And it's, it's just been incredibly painful for them and continues to be as such. So yes, it's, uh, Egypt is going through uh, crisis after crisis and uh, the revelations post October 7th haven't helped them at all, um, which is to say it's clear now that Hamas was smuggling uh, a lot of materials through the border with Egypt and um, and that hasn't really been discussed or addressed yet. Uh, so they're they're in a very problematic position at the moment um, and it, the future is not looking great for for Egypt. Yes, and Israel has made it clear, I think, that if no one else is watching the smuggling under the Rafah uh, borderline, Israel is watching it. And I think Israel assumes that the Egyptians are not going to get it back anytime soon without Israeli um, help. So question yeah. from uh, a listener. Turkey. Um, Turkey makes all kinds of trouble in the region. Is Turkey a supplier of the Houthis? And I don't, I don't know. I'm, I really don't know. I haven't seen or heard any evidence that Turkey is a supplier of the Houthis. Uh, no. Um, they're, uh, they are, you know, friendly to Hamas and other Iranian proxies. Um, also to ISIS, uh, you could argue, but um, I haven't seen any evidence specifically that they're that they're supporting the Houthis. I could be wrong. I just haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I haven't either. I just wondered if you knew more than I knew. And that's what the question was asking. Now, several people <clears throat> have suggested, because you said that attacking things, except possibly in a very specific way inside of Iran. Attacking things inside of Iran might not be the best course of action for the United States. And I understand that because the people of Iran are not the enemy here. You want to make sure that you don't alienate the people that ultimately you want to, to keep as your friends and have as your friends. Several people have asked the question, um, what about Iranian assets in the Red Sea or assets in the Persian Gulf? Would it be useful or is it reasonable, or can the United States make a good case for um, attacking those assets that are not inside of Iran, but rather in the in the seaways? Uh, yes, is my is my short <laughs> answer to that. Okay. Uh, possibly, people are referring to, uh, for example, the quote unquote spy ship. Um, yes, that is a uh, that that's a very um obvious target and um and the fact that Iran has messaged the United States saying you know threatening us if we attack that ship i think that that attacking that ship would send a very clear message about you know how we view their messages and and in fact how um 
it would be a, an important point, an important waypoint on a journey to restore deterrence. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's something that we should, we actually should consider it and, and hopefully, you know, do it. Um, that ship's been on target list for a long time now. And I think um, in terms of, you know, the laws of war and um, self, you know, the laws of self-defense, um, we're fully within our, our mandate to, to take those kind of actions because they're self-defense actions. This, ship and other Iranian assets are involved in attacking both U.S. military and civilian vessels. So, um, and there's, you know, different rules around when a foreign military is attacking our uh, unarmed ships. Um, and there are self-defense measures that we can take, we should take, we must take. And uh, again, to, to that end, we have done the bare minimum and it has not changed anything at all other than to embolden, uh, further embolden Iran. So let me put together two questions here that people have sent in to us. The first part of the question is, is it fair to say that the Biden administration is more worried about the possibility of escalating the conflict with Iran than the damage the Iranians are doing in the region? That's the that's the first piece of their yes. consideration. It's the piece of their yes, clearly, clearly they're terrified of... Okay. They're terrified of escalation, which they are inviting by their actions. Right. So it's a self-defeating policy. Yeah. But the second half of the question is, if their ultimate goal is to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear power, um, and if that's what they're holding up as their primary interest, then they're letting some of this other stuff slide because they say, you know, um, is it true, though, that a nuclear-armed Iran would not be deterrable, or would it? What if, it, I mean, we're close. The Iranians appear to be close to nuclear capability. Is there a difference for us, the United States, and our allies, and Israel, specifically Israel and the United States, if we know that the Iranians have nuclear uh, capability with which to retaliate? And wouldn't that argue for dealing with Iran now? Yes, it would. Uh, dealing with a nuclear Iran would demand a completely different approach um, from the one that I just advocated for. Uh, and yes, time is not on our side. They're very, very close to nuclear breakout. There's arguments about, you know, we're down to days, not weeks, Um they're just, they're getting closer and closer. And, and some people think all of this is actually a distraction because they are so close. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes sense. Um, and I, I would also envision a scenario where if Iran were to become a nuclear state when at a point in time when they started testing or revealing their capabilities, um, they might announce several devices, not just one. Um, and yeah, it, the, it would change. It, it, it would change the the balance of power in the world. I believe um, it would be devastating for the U.S. and its interests, certainly for Israel, um, of which Israel is an important interest. So yeah. So it seems like <clears throat> perhaps the administration is operating counter to its own its own ultimate goals by not taking action in the area. Um, but it raises- It certainly the, has appeared that way, yes. It it appears that way, I'm, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. But it opens the door to a couple of other questions that people have sent in, having to do with the larger world. Um, everything we do everywhere, in Israel, in Ukraine, in the Red Sea, I mean, it, it all goes to what China, what Russia, um, think of us, even even to say what countries like Venezuela, who who doesn't like us and and does a number of things to aggravate us in the southern hemisphere, they watch us, they watch the way we work, and then they, they draw conclusions. Right at the moment, the conclusion of China, Russia, and North Korea is that trading with Iran is a good idea. What are we setting ourselves up for here? And by um, a joint question. Is Iran battle testing its non-nuclear capabilities 
by having a military sales relationship with, with Russia? Um, perhaps. I mean, I think they're, they're keen to, they're, they're keen to test mm -hmm. out a lot there. I mean, Ukraine has become a testing ground for multiple different countries, uh, munitions and capabilities. So just as Syria was for, for, uh, Russia, you know, several years ago, um, Ukraine has become for Russia and for other nations as well. So, um, yeah, I think also, you know, it's a, it's a, um, mutually beneficial relationship in terms of, you know, Iran's revenue generation, um, that's helpful for them. Um, and it gets more attention on their, you know, military sales and what they have, uh, what they produce there. Um, so, and again, we're talking drones, missiles. I mean, there's a, a variety of things, but obviously we're seeing them on full display right now in the Red Sea, thanks to the Houthis. Um, but I, I do think, you know, more broadly, we have seen over the years now that the partnership agreement between Russia, China, and Iran is really bearing fruit. Now, um, you can argue these are all self-interested, you know, countries with self-interested leaders, and they they obviously see self-interest in, in, in entering into these partnerships. Um, it's not because they share a lot of the same, um, you know, overarching goals for, for the world, but their one goal that they share overall is the destruction of the United States um, and, you know, and Israel. So I wouldn't have put Russia in that category before, but I think it's clear they've moved there now. Um, so there, there are these sort of de desire, I would call it, they share a desired strategic end state. And so all of the work that they're doing now together is to achieve this desired strategic end state. And they have different, uh, different, you know, for example, they're uh, moving off of the U.S. dollar, moving onto uh, the, you know, the renminbi, the yuan, different currencies, the ruble, um, to avoid U.S. sanctions. And um, the use of U.S. dollars goes a long way to do that. Um, banking institutions that deal in U.S. dollars, they don't touch those anymore, or as much as possible, they've removed themselves um, from those institutions to be able to operate with impunity and not get um, not get tripped up by sanctions. That said, we do have a lot of sanctions on the books that we are not enforcing, and who benefits from that? Russia, China, Iran. Um, and so, as I advocated for earlier, these are these are steps we could start taking today. Sure, that it's a long term effort to start hurting them in their pocketbooks, but why they are doing everything that they can to um, to hurt us? Why are we not doing everything we can to to respond to that, to hurt them back, and give us um, some more time and space um, to deal with these threats? in the manner that we would like, rather than just being responsive and defensive all the time. And that's what we are, responsive and defensive. So we look at things like Russia and China and North Korea, which are big countries and what they do have big influences on the world. There are other countries whose orientation could, be, could change under the circumstance of Iranian rise and US fall in the region. And I'm thinking specifically of Saudi Arabia and the Abraham Accords countries. Um, one of the reasons we have the Abraham Accords is that countries of the Gulf and countries of North Africa were worried, are worried about Iran and its role. And they saw Israel as part of the bulwark against Iran. And the United States as part of the bulwark against Iran. If they have a change of attitude, if Saudi Arabia looks at this and they're not in Abraham Accords, country, but they are a country who has changed its fundamental uh, perception of Israel and attitude toward Israel. If they take a look around the region and say, look, um, Hamas has seriously undermined Israel and the United States is seriously undermining itself, maybe the goal here for us as Saudis should be to find rapprochement with Iran. 
How much damage would that do to Western interests in the region? Well, um, I, I suppose I, I want to take issue with one thing that you said, which is I don't believe that Saudi Arabia has fundamentally changed its view. Okay. The Saudi Arabia must make the comments that it's made. It must take the position that it's taken um, because Saudi Arabia does not trust the Biden administration or believe that it will do anything to help it, you know, strategically, militarily, in any way at all. And, and that belief is based on the Biden administration's actions since, you know, 2021, since they took over. So they've had to, I'm not defending them, but they've had to do what they've had to do. I mean, it's it's given the neighborhood that they're in, yes, they have achieved a rapprochement already with Iran. Um, the Iranian uh, the embassy was reopened in Riyadh. Um, the, you know, accords were signed in Yemen. Um, all of this is because Saudi Arabia must do what it has to do to protect itself, given that the United States is no longer a security guarantor. So, um, so, but the door is still open in the future um, for normalization. It's going to take a lot longer, and it it is dependent on Israel decisively winning this war. Okay, which makes sense. And I wasn't suggesting that the Saudis were not operating according to their own um, requirements and priorities. That's part of what's going on here. Everybody has their own priorities and occasionally uh, US and Israeli priorities have melded and that's great. And sometimes Israeli and Saudi uh, priorities meld. So, you know, so all of that is, all of that is good, but it could be that countries like Saudi Arabia and certainly the smaller countries, um, Bahrain and Oman and, and Kuwait, look at Iran and say, it's going to be here for a long time and the U.S. may or may not be here for a long time. So they go and they do what they think is most useful. And I can't blame them for that. You, you cannot blame them for that. So we're approaching um, the end of our time. And I've got a, I have a thing I like um, everybody to end on a positive note. You haven't given us very many positive notes. Um, Although I think your suggestions for U.S. policy, if they were implemented, would certainly put us on a better footing in the region. As you look at it and you look at the region, I'm going to ask you to try to be positive here. What are the most likely outcomes here of the Gaza war, of the relationship between the United States and Israel? And there's a ton of stuff that's going on between the United States and Israel right now that is not positive and not happy um, in the Red Sea. We do have an election coming in not very many months. And that is also something our allies and our enemies worry about. It could be that in January of next year, all the current policies change. It could be that they don't change. How are people supposed to deal with that? And where do you see the whole thing going? Without asking you to judge the outcome of the next election. Don't do that. I wouldn't know where to begin uh, <laughs> if, if you did ask me that. I have no idea, um, but but I um, I do I do think that uh, a new administration advocating um, and implementing a change of policy it will be critically important for the future of our country and and for the future of Israel as well. I think um, because we're so we're so tied together in so many ways, um, but. Uh, it's going to take it's going to take a sustained effort because I think one of the one of the unfortunate um, one of the unfortunate things that's happened in the past decades is our U.S. foreign policy has changed almost whimsically with the changes in administration. So four years you have one policy, the next four years you have a different policy. Um, I wish um, that. that I don't see this happening. Sorry, I know you wanted a positive note, but what we do need is a stable U.S. policy for Iran, for China, for Russia. Um, more important, I mean, most importantly to me, I would say China and Iran. Russia has been 
I think in Ukraine revealed to be an emperor with no clothes. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I do think that we need a sustained policy over many years. Um, and we, we, we don't, unfortunately, I, I'm not sure we're going to get that. So, um, a lot, you know, our enemies also see the instability that we have domestically, um, don't see us as being in a position of strength in that way either. Um, but we are the United States. We can prove them wrong. We have so many times before. And uh, and I, I have faith that we will. I don't know how, but I have faith that we will. And uh, because it has to happen. The, this, the future... Um, imagining a future under the status quo truly is unimaginable. So something has to change. Um, I just hope it's because we get a new administration with a new perspective rather than some awful, awful event happens that forces us to, to change what we've been doing, which unfortunately could happen as well. Um, October 7th was not something we could ever have predicted. Uh, and, you know, God forbid we face something like that here or Israel faces another such, such attack. So, um, yeah, we, we, there is still a lot to be hopeful for, but, um, just looking out at the horizon on this particular issue, it's hard to be, it's hard to be immediately optimistic. Shoshan, I'm sorry. That's okay. I'll let you off the hook because, you did go to to what I think is the ultimate optimistic note, and that is that the United States has found itself in difficult positions before. Prior to World War II, I don't think anybody thought we were actually going to get our act together and enter the war on the side of the Allies and win the war and then do the reconstruction and the Marshall Plan and thing. I don't think in, in 1940 people thought we would do it. So I'm hoping that you're right. You know, when we are pressed by difficult circumstances, we've done okay. And you don't remember, but I'm a lot older than you. And I remember the out, the aftermath of the Vietnam War when people said we were finished. You know, we had withdrawn from Vietnam in a way that, first of all, let the communists take over the country, but secondly, um, made us look really weak after that. And the 70s were not a very good era for us. So I think you did touch on the most optimistic bit, and that is that we are the United States. And we've done it before. We have to do it again. Um, and you're also right that we'd like to do it again before the major horrible event that spurs us happens. We don't want another Pearl Harbor. We don't want another 9-11. We have to reach inside ourselves and do it. And so with that, I'm going to let you off for the fact that it wasn't a terribly optimistic statement. And thank you for focusing our concentration where it needs to go. Um, a lot of us tend to watch only the Gaza Strip. We watch only um, Hezbollah and Lebanon. The Red Sea is hugely important. What we do or what we don't do is hugely important. And I thank you for bringing us a very, very clear picture of what we need to worry about. Simone Ledeen, thank you. Thank you.